Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with, I'm changing that from interviews with, conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done, I think, about 435 of them now and over the past eight years. And um, if this is new to you and you'd look, like to look at previous ones, go to the go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, look under the past interviews menu. And you'll find them all organized and arranged there. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it to whatever degree, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and we appreciate your support. Thanks. So my guest today is Leslie Skylar, who, among other things, is an extremely patient person. We've been <laughs> sitting here with her for nearly an hour trying to get the, the audio balanced, and she's been very tolerant of that. So this is a test we put all the guests through, Leslie, just to you know see if they're really all as spiritual as they say they are. You know. <laughs> um, so, Leslie, I'm going to read parts of your bio, but the first part that jumps out when you read it is that when you were um, nine or ten years old, you had a, as you put it, completely spontaneous, life-altering experience of satori or enlightenment that shook your world. Everything and every facet shifted unimaginably. Nothing was ever the same again. And this set you on a life course dedicated to understanding, honoring, and living what had been revealed. So what happened? Tell us about that. Right. Well, great to be here, Rick, and lovely to have everybody uh, listening to us as well. Welcome. Yes, namaste. You. Right. Well, of course, I was little. I didn't know what was occurring. But I was out in the garden one late afternoon sitting quietly, enjoying a little solitude. And all of a sudden, there was a tremendous sort of opening, if you could say that, and everything sort of was filled with light. And there was the most incredible revelation of uh, life and the world and reality as being literally one living being, little one living organism unified, an absolutely overwhelming love and uh, compassion and a view that literally just shook me to the core. It, it seemed to, it wasn't just like looking out at a beautiful sunset. It seemed to be something that was actually penetrating in my being. And the eye that was there, even this little eye, nine-year-old, whatever, seemed to completely disappear. There was, a, there was a melting into a oneness that was just extraordinary. And tears were streaming down my face, even though there wasn't an eye that was actually crying. And it was as if the whole world had opened up in, in, into the view of what's actually true and what's actually real, which then set me on a course to rediscover or to find out what had actually happened to me. Um, so it was very, very profound. Something was sort of rebooted in me. You can imagine a sort of computer, not just a rebooting of your computer, but almost a download from something cosmic or whatever that literally blows the whole system. And it seemed to have been see, that view or that reality seemed to be established in me thereafter, and I could easily access that spaciousness at any time, which really helped me a lot in the in the coming decades. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Well, I have a few questions. First of all, was there any bit of a scary element to it, or was it just completely wonderful? Right. Absolutely zero scary. Zero, zero, zero. Extraordinary beautiful. As I say, in the beginning, the eye seemed to completely disappear, and everything was just oneness. I think if there had been an eye there, maybe there would, would have been a kind of a questioning of what this was, but everything fell away. After that, after the experience, some days and weeks later and in the coming years and decades, there was a lot of confusion because the reality that I then sort of came back to didn't in any way match that experience. But nothing in the experience itself was frightening, disconnected, fragmented. It was more real than anything I'd ever encountered and, you know, so there was, it, it didn't feel like a dream or watching a movie. It was something that was a kind of a multidimensional thing that, you know, that impacted me, as I say, at the core and, and never, never left after that. Had you had any taste of anything like that prior to this? I had felt uh, in a way that what I saw was sort of what I intuited or sensed reality might be, even as a little one, I... There were certain things in the way people engaged I couldn't quite understand. Everybody, everything seemed much more connected and much more whole than what was reflected back in life and family and school and all the rest of it. Um, so in a way, the experience was like coming home. It wasn't something that felt like it had landed from outer space. It was something that felt like a very, very deep homecoming, something that it, that I'd always sort of been with but that had landed in, in a really, really full way. Have you ever had past life experiences or recollections? Right. Somewhat. Not, not any that I would, you know, pay particular attention to or particularly want to comment on. But Well, I'm just curious because I think a, a larger percentage than the average percentage in the general population of the people I interview have had something like this, oh. you know, something something special as a child. Right. And, uh, and often they lose it as they go into their teenage years and so on, and then re- regain it later on. Um, but some people actually have memories of having, you know, dedicated their lives to spiritual development in pre- previous lives and so on. So I was just wondering if you had had anything like that. Right. I felt very sort of connected and resonant with anything to do with renunciates or monks or nuns anywhere I've ever traveled. If I see someone who's in a robe, there's an immediate kind of recognition. And in fact, the experience that I had at age nine or 10 actually created in me a very deep desire to actually want to be a monk or not. And I thought I was, that's what I was going to do. Didn't, didn't end up that way, but. Um, so, yeah, in fact, you say in your bio that you spent years as a renunciate living in ashrams and working deeply with direct teachings of enlightenment, both in the East and the West. Of course, in some of those ashrams, the, the term renunciate is used rather loosely. Um, so I'm not sure to what extent you were living a renunciate life, but I guess you were maybe, were you? I mean, to a great extent. How, how many years did you spend doing this and how austere was it? It was pretty austere, especially one of the ashrams I lived in. They were very serious pursuits. They weren't sort of things that you could dip into and out of. You had to qualify. And the one where I spent four or five years was very serious. It required a complete giving up. So at that time, I was uh, married. I have two children who are now 18 years of age, happily at university in different parts of Canada. 
Are they twins? They're twins, right. So at that point, I was pulled and moved to actually leave everything. I didn't know how long I was going to leave for. I had an idea that I would maybe take my children with me because all of these ashrams have communities where, you know, you can have families and children. Uh, didn't end up happening that way, but I basically had to leave everything, my friends, my family, my children, my money, the security of my home. And when I got there, the teacher said, well, that's just the beginning. That's nothing. <laughs> you know, so you've renounced the sort of physical things, but the bigger issues are renouncing the eye sense. And, you know, all of those things that you hold most dear, which are your ideas and your goals and your, you know, your self-sense. So it was a pretty big deal, though, on the level you know, on the level of just leaving everything. It was very significant. Uh, yeah, it's huge. I mean, especially anyone who's a parent or especially a mother who's listening to this. I mean, how old were the kids at that the point? The kids were five or six at that time. It must have been gut-wrenching. It was. To, it was gut-wrenching. And, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, this so-called experience of opening that I had somehow allowed me to connect with an intuitive guiding compass or sense, a really deep sense of self. And that's what I checked in with or into when I was, you know, when I was, I felt the call to actually become a renunciate. It wasn't just a whimsical thing where I decided, well, you know, I'm leaving everything. I deeply sort of checked in that actually this was really a deep movement, that that's where the life energy was moving. And I, it, it was, and that's what was required of me. And so I knew it was what I had to do, which which allowed me, you know, to do it. Really, it wasn't it wasn't a choice at the level of a mental choice or a, the level of a person. It was a very deep calling that somehow I knew I had to follow. Yeah, it's interesting because often that intuitive voice is is rather quiet. It's subtle. It's a, it's just a sort of a an impulse, you know, that if you're attuned to it, you you follow. Um, but very often the concerns of the world and various reasons and rationales override it. You right. know? And, and you, you think, well, this is the impulse, but if I do this, it's going to create harm. Did some people consider you selfish for doing this? Here you are, this, this young mother leaving her young children. And did you have people saying to you, you know, well, why don't you think about the kids and stop being so hung up in yourself right. or something like that? I did, I did. And yet there was a knowing that was doubtless. And as I say, it, it came from the same source as the revelation that somehow this was needed. And I thought as I left that I would end up, you know, having my children with me. So I thought that I would maybe be gone for a few months or even a few weeks and that I would you know, the children would come and live with me in the ashram. So in my mind, it wasn't a complete giving up forever or for years. But then it turned out to be it five years. It turned out to be that way. But I did travel backwards and forwards quite frequently. Ah, so you're visiting. So, yeah. you know, okay. the, the teacher gave me permission to do that because of the age of my children. So I'd come back to Vancouver and spend a couple of weeks with the kids and we'd do lots of Skypes. And, but still, it wasn't the same thing. It was a big deal. Yeah, I can imagine. I can t totally relate to it i mean i can't relate to it because i don't i don't have kids but i i i'm a little bit in awe of you for <laughs> having been able to do that we won't get into specifics but was the ashram sort of hindu oriented buddhist oriented it was i would say non-duality a, a kind of a non-duality focus um Eastern teacher or Western teacher? Western teachers that lived in different locations, although I did spend time 
with a few Eastern teachers as well in India and Tibet. But the ones that I lived with was for significant periods were Western teachers who spoke English, and so we could get into a real depth. Was this in the West, or, or you, you traveled to India? Different to do places. This? I lived in North America. I lived in Europe for periods, and I lived in Southeast Asia as well. So I just like to add a little something about that, you know, because people sort of have this romanticized notion of living in ashrams. So what I would say is that the primary learning I had there, I went there already very mature and pretty deep. And I somehow, you know, as I indicated, I felt that this was part of my destiny, part of what I needed to do. But I thought that I would gain a lot in terms of an understanding of the truth. And what my experience at these ashrams revealed was more about what was not true than that what was true, which ended up being um, a profound teaching and a learning, really, especially in terms of the teaching work I now do, because I saw a tremendous amount about what can go wrong in the process of so-called teaching or assisting or guiding others. Um, you know, there was there were all sorts of things going on that actually were very contradictory. And, you know, I saw you posted something a couple of weeks ago on ethics in spirituality. In spirituality. And so this was a very, very interesting window. You know, some of these teachers are pretty well known. I don't want to mention names, but they're, you know, if I if I mentioned the names, everybody would know them. They're very well known teachers. So they weren't you know, they were supposedly truly enlightened beings who, yeah. you know, had profound teachings. Yeah. And yet how that manifested in terms of the actual lived situation in the ashrams was quite, quite astonishing. It took me a long time to, to work out what was actually going on there, how you could have, you know, in one human being, the coinciding of real revelation together with truly, you know, some somewhat unhinged or, or dysfunctional behavior, various shadow and patterns that hadn't yet been resolved. So I saw that up close and personal. Uh, you know, for some years I was I ended up being a very senior person in some of these ashrams and ended up running one of them with the teacher. So I really got to see the ins and outs and um Anything my ego might have wanted from this teaching work in terms of power or anything in that regard was really wiped clean. It was a deep purification to see the harm that was done to individuals there who trusted the teacher really deeply. And, you know, many, I think, were scarred for life, and some of them I don't think will get over that. So that was really profound. It was it deeply, deeply touched me, and so... You know, I've always been very much on the moral side. I very much believe in integrity and, and, and following truth. But this really cemented that very profoundly. I want to have you elaborate on that in a second and uh, tell me how you came to um, reconcile these discrepancies. But I'll, t- I'll tell you how I have, which is to say that I, I, av- I avoid any notion of um, enlightenment as uh, – I haven't encountered very many examples of what I would consider to be some kind of final state which can't be improved upon. Um, You know, it's like I I kind of have the attitude that everybody's a work in progress, no matter how highly evolved they are, and that they're they're going to have human foibles which still need to be worked out. 
and um, I don't know. I'll say just that much. I mean, how would you respond to right. that? So I, I would agree with that in my own experience and looking at others and the teachers that I've that I know and have worked with. I don't believe that there is any final state whatsoever. In fact, one's deepest experiences of the absolute or reality re- reveal that that's completely not the case. We're dealing with reality that's infinite. There is no way that there is a finite point to infinite reality. There's certainly not a finite resolution of the infinite in, in a human body. And so I think that's, you know, one of the mistakes that some of the teachings make. They, some of the teachers that I was involved with presumed that they were beyond feedback. They had come to a stage that was final and that, you know, they didn't need any reflection or they didn't, they didn't need any introspection. Really a, a lack of humility, humility and also a lack of a groundedness and discipline in really deep, deep practice, which then allowed their shadow or any parts that they hadn't properly examined to really run rampant. You know, the greater power we have, the more those small foibles or shadow elements become really magnified over time, especially in the context of a community. And, of course, spiritual, deep spiritual work really empowers, can empower the ego. If the ego is not sufficiently purified through, you know, right practice and discipline and, and various practices, they really focus on humility, which is, you know, part of what I do very deeply in the, the teaching work that I do. Um, the at various points in the, the process of deepening or, you know, periods where we have awakenings or et cetera, et cetera, anything that's not yet purified remains. And it doesn't just disappear because one has a so-called, you know, experience of awakening. It needs to be seen through, you know, the light of truth needs to really be brought to that. Otherwise it, it grows and it, it's magnified in the context of, of teaching work or an ashram or a community of individuals. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that, you know, someone has some profound awakening and in a sense it makes them even more blind to their shortcomings than they might have been before. Right. You know? That's what I found, Rick. It was very surprising, you know, and myself included. Of course, it brought up so much in me, which was very helpful to see, but very painful and challenging too. I felt that a number of the people that I was engaged with in the ashrams, the more senior people, including the teacher, seemed to have greater aberrations than the average person out there. You know, I I was happy to come back from the ashrams during my visits to the kids and just chat to the green grocer and, you know, the fisherman on the dock. The simplicity of life, you know, with regular human beings who don't don't have grandiose visions of what they are and, you know, these teaching visions, it was just such a relief. So there's an interesting thing that can happen there. As I said, you know, any of these aspects of self that have not been fully purified really are magnified in that context because you connect to a power that's not your own when you, you know, connect with deep spiritual teaching. So any ego that's there tends to get really inflated. I have this really good friend who works in the local grocery store. And before that, he was working in a different grocery store. But he's been meditating for decades. And, and at one point, he said to me, I'm so sick of being around spiritual people. You know, I just want to work in the in the non-spiritual grocery store. You know, just in, he, he had a job in the liquor department. 
just because of what you're saying, there's this this sort of the people's idiosyncrasies and and flaws in some in many cases, not all, um, seem to get magnified by the shakti or something that they've they've tapped into. Right, that's my experience, and so uh, you know, I think it's very useful then for teachings to to emphasize the whole being and to you know engage in, in practices to help individuals engage with practices and various forms of inquiry and deep looking that can reveal these areas of shadow and blind spots. And we all have them. You know, I've, I've met and worked with many people who, who, when I talk about this, sort of think, well, oh, she must be speaking about someone else. You know, I've done enough spiritual work. I've meditated for 20 years or 30 years. I'm pretty clear. Well, that's just the point. You see, shadow is something that you can't see yourself. And so it's a real thing. Obviously, you know, anybody who knows anything about psychology will know that these are real phenomena. And as soon as they are empowered with the shakti of, you know, source or infinite, this infinite spaciousness that we connect with as we engage spiritual practices, anything that's not purified will will tend to really blow up and, and create some kind of ego inflation. And that's unfortunate because it arrests people's development then. If people are stuck in certain areas because they can't see where they are or where they're stuck, I, I see that as one of the most, you know, significant reasons why people actually don't end up in a place in the so-called journey where they come to abiding realization. Um, so I've distinguished, by the way, I think this is just an important point that I wanted to make between what I would call openings or awakenings and what I would call abiding realization. They're not the same thing at all. And so I see in the, you know, local spiritual terrain, people presume that if they've had some kind of experience that they, you know, that, oh, well, I'm pretty much like Ramana Maharshi now, or I'm done. <laughs> and actually nothing could be further from the truth. You know, it's, um, yeah. uh, I always sort of point out that awakenings are like drawing the curtains open. They give you a view of something that is a possibility, and they're just a partial view, even the deepest ones. It then requires the individual to actually embody that view and expand and deepen that view in order for that to become uh, embodied and lived and end up being a spontaneous way of living. So, yes, there is practice involved. There's deep inquiry that's needed. Um, there's really deep, you know, radical self-honesty that's needed in a whole number of factors. Otherwise, it doesn't stabilize because the conditioning of the human being, you know, is is so strong and is so significant that it, rides roughshod over these awakenings. And that's why people, you know, can have a honeymoon period where they feel things are more blissful, there's a greater openness, and then lo and behold, that honeymoon period ends within days or weeks or months, sometimes years. And sometimes, you know, people can feel they're almost back to square one again. It's because what wasn't clarified then is st still remains. And, you know, very deep teachings and people we tend to, to sort of regard as people, you know, sages, for example, like a Ramana Maharshi or a Nisargadatta Maharaj, for example. I mean, you know, tremendous um, effort and seeing and clarity there in the in the area of purification. You can you can see and feel in their energy that you know these individuals left no stone unturned in terms of their own inquiry, their dedication to truth. 
And, you know, it was years and sometimes decades in the making. It is not something that happens overnight. It's a process of really deep looking and undoing, seeing through and a dissolution of this sort of bundle of conditioned impulses that we call the separate self-sense or the ego. Personally, I think it's a lifelong endeavor. You know, as long as you're breathing, still you're doing still doing it. Doing it. Right. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. And as we said earlier, you know, there's no end point. But what I have noticed, you know, looking at many people that I'm, I've seen and worked with and teachers, etc., and looking back over history, is that there are things that we could regard as stages or points that you can come to. Awakening is such a point. You know, before that, you're in conventional reality. You have no clue that there's another way to see things. And all of a sudden, there's an awakening that, you know, that shakes your world. The same thing with abiding realization. There is a point in this journey, and it's different for different people. You know, we, we can't put a timeline to it, where things stabilize and settle. The deepening is sufficiently um, uh, holistic and the inquiry or the practices have been sufficient to actually create a, a kind of a place, you could say, or position where we are no longer bound by the patterning. It's been seen through so deeply and clearly that even though thoughts or feelings or particular patterns may arise, one is in a place where you're not, you're no longer bound to that. And then something completely different happens in my experience. It's a very, very different thing than any other part of the journey. It's like you've, you know, rockets taken off into space and you've got this tremendous force of the engines that have to break through the gravity. And then when you reach cruising altitude, it's like, ah, there's a kind of a stopping, a quietening, and there's a spontaneity that begins to take over where there's not a doing anymore, you know, there's a, you know, letting go even of practices. There's a, a spontaneous living as as something completely other than, than what you always thought you were. Hmm. One thing I've been thinking about in the last couple of days in, as a result of things I've been going through with a friend and some people I've interviewed is that, and reflecting even also in my own experience, is that there can be an abiding state and it can be just, you know, rock solid, 24-7, continuous thing. And one can, in a way, feel take refuge in that and, and feel a, 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 a sort of a, a contentment and a naturalness and a, a resting in that. And yet still, you know, your human behavior can go off the rails and, and you may not even be aware of it, how crazy you're getting or how off you're getting because there's this, it's sort of buffered by or softened by this sort of presence that just continues to abide. Can you relate to that? Uh, to some extent, what I would what I would say to that, Rick, is that you know, if there are if there is sufficient clarity, if there is sufficient self awareness and self understanding, and you know, one has done enough really deep inquiry into the nature of reality, there really is a, a deep seeing of the way the patterning works in in this particular body mind or, or whatever, and. You know, one has engaged so many different ways of learning how to look and be alert that that almost becomes second nature. So I think at a certain point, the clarity actually outshines any sort of dullness or, or, or attempt to kind of rest in something. 
And there are ways of seeing that. If that is what's happening, you can see the well, yeah, I'm not even talking. I'm not talking about an attempt to rest in anything because it's not an effort. It's a spontaneous resting. But still, you know, the the behavior can be kind of strange. I mean, and, and you know, we're, we could be alluding here to world famous teachers who uh, had you know Shakti. You know, pouring out of their every pore, and and you sit in their presence, and you feel transformed, and that, and that, then there's this strange behavior that gets on Earth, maybe years later, or you know, some revelation takes place, and you find out they've been doing this or that. They appear to get overshadowed. They appear. I mean, saying they appear to get overshadowed by things, or they appear to indulge in, um, you know. Yeah, and so and, and yet, you know, they'll come back down to the lecture hall the next day and be bright as a lighthouse. So you kind of it, it confuses people, you know, and they wonder what's going on. Why is this? Why does this almost seem to be the norm rather than the exception? Right. Because of I think because of what we've been speaking about, the, the purification is not sufficient, and possibly that that individual didn't go through enough really deep practice where they've learned to really look and see and. If the practices are sufficiently deep and rigorous and disciplined, one learns to look at yourself in 360 degrees. You learn to observe not only your own patterning of mind and the way you relate to your emotions and your the felt sense of your experience, but also your actions. And if there's been a deep enough immersion in really clear teachings, that that kind of awareness will alert you to your own actions that are going off off the track. And if, if one isn't doing that, it's because there hasn't been sufficient, you know, practice or clarification of some of these, um, these sticking points in the sh- and the shadow. And one can say, well, you know, why is that the case? Well, it's a deep process, and that's why there are so few that really come to a place where there's a real purification. It's, it's, a, it's a really holistic thing. Every facet of the being has to be considered from, you know, eating one's relationship to other human beings, to sexuality, to the self-sense. It, it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted, multidimensional looking. It's not just about learning about the nature of reality. The entire human being needs to be sort of purified in the light of truth on all these dimensions and that takes a long time it takes very clear and deep looking but you know at certain points i think if we look at at the spiritual scene at the moment there are a number of teachers that i think are you know they're very well rounded they're really deep they're established and they're not going off the you know they're not going off the track anywhere along the line and there are some really good ones so it is possible but you know similarly if if things have not been clarified enough, then there's a tendency to go off the track. And, of course, if one has a, a group of peers that you can get feedback from, that would, would help that situation too, or a lineage that, that can give feedback because then before the issue becomes significant, it can be nipped in the bud. But a number of the rogue teachers, almost if we can call them that, end up coming to a place where they think they're beyond that kind of feedback. And that's already a sign of lack of humility there because none of us are beyond that. You know, as soon as we think we're beyond any potential of the ego having any impact again, I think that's a real sign of delusion. It's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, and a lot of the people, a lot of the most sort of notorious examples of this didn't have any peers because they were the top dog, you know. And in many cases, they actually forbade any kind of critical feedback 
and people would get booted out of the ashram if they offered it. You know, they kind of painted themselves into a corner in a way. Well, we're not going to spend our whole interview talking about this one point, but it is an important one. Here's an email that came in from a listener, uh, Barry Wadsworth in Sacramento. He asks, it is said that in the Zen tradition that true cultivation occurs once one enters the gateless barrier, that is, directly experiences no self, impermanence, and the truth of dissatisfaction or suffering. If you agree, what practices are involved in further cultivation, cultivation and what does this lead to? Right. Well, I would leave aside the, the talk about no self for right now, because that, in my view, is a very, very deep stage. And I think very few people in my experience have got there. So we'll leave that for the moment. The way I see it and the way I teach it is that it's not the ego self or the separate self that has to do this work of purification that we're speaking about. It's actually the light of truth itself. There are certain practices we can use that open the awareness to accessing different, you could call them states of being, a kind of state that you would experience, for example, in really deep meditation or in some kind of an awakening. It's a different, we could say, state of consciousness. It's not the sort of separate self sense that is simply looking at itself, trying to fix itself. In fact, quite the opposite is the case. You know, we are nothing that we appear to be. Everything that is, is consciousness, is God. And I mean, th those are very profound points. So we can then, that gives us an insight into to seeing that the consciousness that we live with in conventional reality is a pinprick in, in the realm of what's actually possible. And the reason we don't access these deeper states is because we, we haven't learned how to do that. So I would say that the practices need to involve a teaching of people of how to rest in this deeper place that they can access in their own being. It's not a special place. It isn't, doesn't, isn't the province of special teachers or human beings. It's, it's our own true nature. So one of the, the practices that helps really deeply with this, and I'm sure you can attest to this from your TM background, Nick, Rick, is, um, is meditation. I think meditation is a very profound and important practice. It's something I advise everybody that I work with to do because what we do there is we learn to actually access, you could say, a part of our being, the deepest part of our being that isn't subject to mind. And re with really deep, clear meditation, we are practicing no relationship to thought and feeling. That results in a quieting, quietening of the mind and almost a sense of objectivity as zooming out where we can then begin to actually embody, not just conceptually, we're not going to some kind of spaciousness in our mind. We actually have to feel the depth of this higher vibrational frequency or different state of consciousness in our own being. The heart rate drops, the being quiets, you feel the heart soft, open and undefended. And that kind of stilling of the mind and ability to learn to practice no relationship to thought and feeling is a real gateway to deepening, uh, as one example. And uh, there are a number of other practices that I work with and I teach 
Some of the most profound, I think, actually come from the Dzogchen tradition, which is a, a form of a type of Zen Buddhism, Buddhism that has been taught by masters in Tibet and Nepal. And that focuses very much on direct experience. It's, there are practices that orient you and teach you, essentially mimicking abiding realization, to live life, your everyday life, when you're cooking your breakfast and having a shower and going to work and talking to your family, from the same depth of consciousness or awareness that you do in a meditative state. So when you deeply meditate, that same clarity, that same spaciousness that you encounter, we want to translate that into your everyday lived experience. And there are various practices one can do to help do that. So one ends up living life as a kind of a waking meditation where instead of dipping into and out of the sort of contracted consciousness of the separate self, we learn to bring the depth of the consciousness that we encounter in meditation, for example, into all these other areas of our lives. That's essentially what embodiment involves. And then you you run aground in all sorts of problems as you do that because we are so, um, you know, we're so deeply conditioned to relate to reality through our minds, through our thoughts and our feelings and this virtual reality world that we create by living in a, basically in a bubble in our head. Um, abiding realization is living outside of that bubble. It's actually living in reality as a whole. And the center of this bubble really is the self-sense. So practices like meditation begin to orient you and teach you to access, to some degree, the consciousness that's actually beyond this bubble of your mind, the, the mediated reality of your own mind. Without that no deepening is really going to happen because these patterns of the self-sense are incredibly strong. Um, and I think one of the most profound things I think I've learned in these sort of decades I've been involved in this work is I've learned to really appreciate and honor the depth of the egoic structure. That is a very, it's a very profound piece of work that we're dealing with there. And anybody who underestimates what they're dealing with will end up, you know, falling, uh, falling into to traps and, you know, running aground in their own understanding because they haven't properly seen what's actually there and how deeply, deeply, deeply we are imprinted and conditioned, largely unconsciously, actually, to take the position of a self. Um, so these very deep practices like some of the Dzogchen practices and meditation begin to orient us to a different way of being. And that creates a doorway or a pathway to a different different way of functioning. And it also, you know, it reconfigures the whole being. It's The egoic structure is not just a thought, I am a separate self. If it was that simple, you know, we'd have the whole, half the planet enlightened. But it's a very complex structure, which includes emotions, it in, includes the felt experience, the body, the energetic system, the neural networks, the nervous system, you know, it has been conditioned from birth. So we have decades, you know, trillions and trillions of repetitions of certain patterns of thinking that are basically imprinted in the way the mind functions. And that's why the ego structure is so challenging to really work with because it's not just a matter of saying, well, who is the I? Oh, yes, I know I'm not separate. I had that one experience. And people say, well, how come I can't sustain that view? 
Right, because the view that you conditioned in actually holds the old egoic um, view basically in place and the practices that allow you to access a different part of your being begin to create a pathway to to finding your way out of that entanglement of the egoic structure. So without practices, I, I've never really seen it happen. I'm not saying that it can't, but... Some people have spontaneous awakenings without practices, but like you did. But then usually they need to do something in order to stabilize and integrate you know that and make it a exactly that's what reality I'm speaking and not about. just a, a right. nice memory so I, uh, by know? no manner of means was i enlightened at age nine i can assure you i had just as everybody else's i had uh, you know my full fair share of issues and problems and self-doubt and all sorts of things that i had to contend with and that was the process of embodiment that i had to then work through to to almost come back to and also deepen what I'd originally seen. It, you know, it was, and it took me decades to do that. It wasn't a matter of a couple of days or weeks or months even. It was a, you know, a long process. Yeah. Um, so I just want to comment on a couple of things you said and then ask a question or two. Um, well, one is I like your emphasis on experience because a lot of people become top heavy and, and they, they read a lot of books and watch a lot of YouTube videos and, and stuff. And, and so they kind of begin to, hypnotize themselves into thinking that the understanding they're gaining from all this is equivalent to the experience that you know ramana or somebody else was actually having in a much more visceral way not just not just an understanding so there's that and then your reference to the physiology i think is really good because you know physiologists tell us that any mental activity or state of consciousness even major states such as waking dreaming and sleeping um, have very distinct physiological correlates waking the physiology of waking is as unlike the physiology of sleeping as the experience of waking is unlike the experience of sleeping and the same will be true of enlightenment or higher states of consciousness uh, if they are radically different subjective ways of experiencing life experiencing the world then there ought to be there has to be radically different physiological functioning which could be measured and which many studies are trying to measure and have done so, have done to a pretty great degree, but I'm sure they can do a lot more research. And the reason you say it might take decades is that your entire physiology doesn't get transformed in a moment. Would they say we replaced pretty much all of our cells every seven years? And, you know, and then people are talking about neuroplasticity where the brain can change, but all that takes time and, and the physiology can be dramatically and profoundly restructured but it's right. going to take time and that's why the emphasis on practices i think are really important if you look at, at individuals say in the last hundred years who've truly come to a place of abiding realization both deceased teachers and those still in the body at the moment you will find that all of them have done significant or most of them have done really significant practices maybe they had a spontaneous awakening but then they spent 10 years in a cave or they like exactly, Adyushanti, yeah. Shanti, many others. So if you look deeply at the history of these individuals, you'll see that there, there's deep practice, deep looking involved. And the reason for that is exactly as we were just speaking about, is because the patterning needs to be dissolved through repetition of a different state of consciousness. We have to immerse ourselves 
in this, you could say, you know, different state of being, different state of consciousness is a completely different vibrational frequency. And you, when you learn to attune to it, you can feel it in your own being. You know, it's what some people call transmission. Um, and that you can't do that by commanding it into your experience. Like, you know, the mind decides, well, I want that now. It, it, it doesn't work like that. It's like anything that in life where you have to learn something, it takes practice. It's like right. a little kid saying, I want exactly, to be a grown up now. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, I want to be a master chef right now or world famous class pianist. Anything takes practice, you know, and in that practice is trial and error. You learn where the erroneous views are, you purify things that you're holding on to. There's a deeper and deeper surrender as you engage these practices to what? To that which is your own true nature, which is this completely different state of consciousness. It's, you know, it's entirely different, different to the to conventional consciousness. And the practices allow you to literally reconfigure the being. So one's brain almost begins to think and function in a different way, which impacts the nervous system literally. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, many studies on meditation and other things are, are showing that to be true. So the repetition of, and, and the rep, repetition of the accessing of these deep states is absolutely crucial to rewiring the being and reconstituting the being. If one is interested in any kind of abiding realization, it's not going to be done without practice. So, Yeah. There's also a safety issue. You wouldn't want to experience overnight what you're going, the transformation you're going to undergo over 30, 40 years or whatever. You would be fried to a crisp. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to function. So there has to be this incremental modification so that it's integrated at every step of the way. I'll give you a little metaphor, which might illustrate this for people. In India, maybe even now, but they, they used to dye cloth by dipping the white cloth in, in, let's say, red dye or something. And then they'd take it out and bleach it in the sun, and it would lose most of its color due to the bleaching. And then they'd dip it again, and then they'd bleach it in the sun. And again, it would lose most of its color, but a little bit more would remain. And they'd repeat that process until it you know, became just as red in the sun as and stayed that way as it, it as it was when it was in the dye. So you can think of that as a metaphor for spiritual practice. Right, very you know? much so. Yeah. And the other thing about practice, um, Rick, is that you know people think as well. Well, I'll just quickly do meditation and get a book on whatever zogchen and quickly practice that. It doesn't work that way either because what one is doing here is. It can be a beginning point, but one, what one is actually doing is learning to access a completely different state of consciousness. If those, you know, if we can use those words, it's not as simple as simply saying, "Well, I'm just going to close my eyes, sit quietly with my, you know, spine erect, and that's going to be equivalent to meditation." You know, I work with many people, and I have seen in my own experience that. Even people who are very experienced in this terrain, people who've meditated for 10 years, 15 years, they can discover at a certain point in their own journey as their own capacity deepens, as their own understanding deepens, that actually something like meditation, they've even wrongly engaged for large periods of those 10 years. They use m meditation, for example, as a way to grasp at or get to states of bliss or peace or, you know, there are ways of orienting that the mind will still grab onto 
or the separate self sense will still use these practices to try to get, <laughs> to get, to push and pull, to, to avoid certain things, you know, which is the way the egoic function, uh, ego, ego functions normally. And so those things continue in spiritual practices. So the teacher and the teachings, and if, or when, if one is working with a spiritual community, helps to then give you specific feedback to see where you, you know, where you're going wrong. A teacher can hear by the way someone is describing their experience over time and by the results being achieved, whether you're actually stuck in a particular thing or have misinterpreted an aspect of the practice or whether your mind or your ego, let's, you know, I'm using these words interchangeably, mind, ego, separate self-sense, is actually the one doing the practice and that you're not really accessing this very deep, state of consciousness. So, you know, one could meditate for 10 years, but be wasting your time if it's not being done correctly. And similarly with all the other practices. So, which is why, you know, in the days of old, the masters only gave these teachings to people that they actually taught in person. They didn't, you know, write a, uh, on a piece of manuscript or whatever, or a script and simply send it out to people. People had to be coached and mentored and given very direct feedback to actually optimize and deepen and and create a right a right practice. So again, practice isn't as easy as it appears. It definitely needs to be coached in my experience for it to be really deep. Let me give you an objection to practice that you sometimes hear in neo advaita circles. People say sometimes practice is only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer and that um, you are already that, so why do you need to do anything to become that which you already are? You're, you're just sort of re reinforcing some sense of ego or re individuality by sitting down and doing something. Right. What do you well, say that? Well, that might very well be the case and probably is at the beginning of your practice. But here's the point. There's no other way that... I'm aware of, and you know, anybody who's teaching has looked into these things yourselves. And if we look back over two, three thousand years of human history, we have access to all the deepest teachings that have been given. You know, from the beginning, the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, and the things that the rishis wrote in you know two thousand years ago. Um, so when we talk about practice and spiritual teaching, we're not just talking about, like me for myself, a sample of one, Waidya Shanti or Rupert Spiral. These individuals, we've all engaged very deeply across the board to see what's there. And it's very clear that if you don't engage with some kind of practice, that people can test it out for themselves. You will get nowhere. And the reason for that is because the patterning is so strong. We are so deeply conditioned on all these levels of the being to relate to reality from a certain viewpoint. Um, that viewpoint is not under the control of your personal will or your mind. You cannot simply wish yourself deeper or, you know, decide that you're going to be enlightened in a week's time and, that, and have it be so. So what the practices do, even though in the beginning they may – I wouldn't say reinforce. They are simply doing what normal people are doing in any case. They're not doing anything worse. But what they will show you if you're a diligent, rigorous pract practitioner is soon, and especially with the help of teachings or teacher, you will begin to see where you're going wrong in your practice. And so as Ramana Maharshi says, the reason for effort is ultimately to see 
that there is no effort needed. But you can't skip over that. You can't bypass the practice and jump to the final point in the same ways you can't, you know, train yourself to become an Olympian by wishing it was so reading a book. You actually have to engage in the errors and the problems. And through that, what you begin to see is where you need to optimize, where you need to let go. And, you know, ultimately, it's all a process of dissolution. And, you know, maybe if somebody's tried a practice or two and maybe they didn't enjoy it that much and, and all this talk about practices is making things, oh, I really don't want to. But practices, they don't have to be effortful and they can be very delightful to experience. I've been meditating a couple hours a day on average for almost 50 years and it's never taken discipline. And believe me, I, I was not known as a disciplined person when I started this. All my friends thought I was going to just quit in, in a week or two and be on my, my next fad. Uh, but it was just so transformative and so enjoyable from day one that I've never missed a sitting in, in all these years. So practice can be a joy. It's, it's something you look, it can be something you look forward to every day. It's not, it's not a, you know, burdensome kind of thing, necessarily. I mean, some might be, but they, they, they aren't all. No, I totally agree with that. And, you know, when you see what the benefits of the practices are, then it's very clear how really important and useful they are. And, you know, they can be incredibly illuminating. So, you know, practices would include self-inquiry. So I'm very big on self-inquiry as, as an adjunct to these other practices we've been speaking about. And that's thrilling. There's nothing more interesting. There's nothing more riveting than to really begin to discover the depth of your own beingness, the nature of reality itself. I mean, what could be a more interesting thing to inquire into? And, you know, this kind of inquiry is not a conceptual inquiry. It's an inquiry that one can discover in the depth of your own being, in your own experience over time. So, Ultimately, it's all pretty thrilling. I mean, most of the people that I've seen or people I work with find the journey, so-called, absolutely thrilling. It's something that is astoundingly beautiful. You know, one, one, one opens up depths of, of your own being. You see, begin to see shifts in the way that you perceive the world that is just like nothing that you can encounter, you know, anywhere in the world. No pursuit, no hobby, no endeavor is in any way comparable to this. I mean, one, you know, one sees that everything is beloved. Everything is precious. Everything is beautiful. These beautiful spiritual pointers that one can read about that say everything is one will come to experience that in your own being. There's nothing more astounding. You know, your heart explodes, you, your whole being shifts, which is, you know, why often people who've come to these really deep places of abiding, you, you, your life changes radically often because your point of view is not just something that is an abstract thing that you look out there. Every aspect of the being and the way, you know, one relates to reality shifts to the point where one doesn't see the other. You know, one sees everything really as a kind of reflection of a, of a oneness. So, if a few practices are going to help you come to this kind of depth of understanding, a true homecoming, you know, people look for love and happiness and uh, attunement to their deeper self. Well, there's only one place you can get that. There's only one solution for all of that, and that's, you know, to actually come home to your own beingness. I agree. I mean, I think that what we're talking about here is the greatest of all 
human endeavors and of all of all scientific explorations. Elon Musk wants to colonize Mars, and that's interesting. And you know, and we want to understand how the universe works through quantum mechanics or various other fields, and that's all great. We should keep doing those things. But if we don't know who we are, let me just throw in another angle, and that is that Elon Musk, by the way, is okay. a regular meditator, but. You could think of the human mind and nervous system as the ultimate scientific instrument. It's able to explore levels of reality far more profound than any instrument that scientists have been able to construct. Even a single cell is more complex than pretty much anything scientists have been able to construct. So, great, we have the Large Hadron Collider, let's use it, let's see if we can prove the Higgs boson and, and whatnot. But we each possess something more marvelous than the Large Hadron Collider, let's use its full potential and see what that will result in, in terms of our own personal experience. You know, I mean, the guys in Geneva, they say they found the Higgs boson, great, I don't even understand what that means, doesn't do much for me personally, but if I can use this instrument to the fullest extent of its capacity or its potential, it's going to be a completely transformative thing in my life, and I'm speaking, obviously, exactly. of everyone's life. Totally agree, yeah. totally agree. And the interesting thing about any kind of awakening or opening, it seems to create almost a sense of a calling, much like I had in the, we were talking about, you know, when I went off to the ashrams. Every, it happens differently for different people, but there's almost a felt responsibility to actually live into the fullness of what you've seen, to with integrity and authenticity to actually express and live that. And that seems innate in this deeper consciousness. It's it's a manifestation of that, of the consciousness itself, that it, once, once you have a taste of it, it sort of beckons, it calls you, it calls you home, and nothing else is going to suffice. Yeah, there's a verse in the Gita which says, even a little of this dharma delivers from great fear. Um, but it, you're right, I mean, it's not just this aspiration that we're describing, this endeavor, is not just an individual thing, it's, it's God working through anyone who wishes to sign up for the project, you know, uh, and it's working through everyone, obviously. But if, if you become a conscious participant in what I regard as the sort of the deep evolutionary trajectory that has been evolving the universe for 14 billion years, um, you, it really accelerates that divine intelligence working in and through you. Totally agree. And, you know, the beautiful thing is the journey often starts for people as something that they want to get for themselves. They want to get rid of suffering. You know, they want to find their way out of a yeah, problem. And that's fine. Right. And then that will whatever, purify yeah. itself over time. It will, the motive will shift over time where there's a deeper and deeper connection to truth itself and to just wanting to live this itself as one is purified. And, you know, ultimately we discover that the journey we thought we were on individually to come home to ourselves is actually something completely different than that. It's literally awareness coming home to its own being. It's awareness becoming conscious of its own beingness. And there ultimately isn't a personal dimension to that at all. You know, the deeper one goes, the more the personal is just a memory of something that one felt in the past. It just isn't like that. You know, you, you, you literally are lived by this deeper consciousness that doesn't have a self-center. It's some, I speak about it as a centerless center. And I, and I felt that from the first experience, that deep experience I had at age nine or so. And it was one of the things that 
profoundly confused me. You know, I, I couldn't understand how I ended up in this particular body. And I remember as a, even a teenager and many times in my life, it's almost as if what had happened is there'd been such a shift in the being that I then had to integrate the level of form, not the other way around. It's like I'd landed in the depth and I actually had to integrate the form, whereas, you know, many people work from the, the, the sort of shallow end into the depth. And so there was such a felt sense of oneness that was prevalent. And it was like, how, how did I end up here? I couldn't quite work out how this consciousness, this awareness seemed to be specifically only able to feel, sense, taste, touch, and, touch and smell through this particular vessel. It, it, it like confounded me. It took me a long time to understand. Why is it localized to this? It, because it's not localized in and of itself. So why, why, I mean, you're not seeing things through my eyes or through the dog's eyes or through, uh, you know, the, the billions of other eyes and, and ears and so on in this, in this world or trillions in this universe. So how, how does the ocean manage to get so squeezed into a drop? Right. <laughs> Is right. that what you're getting well, but, at? But, you know, yeah. even the, sense, the, the five senses and the way the body functions, it, it's a very deep part of the illusion of being a separate self because – you know, it, it appears as if all I can do is taste, smell, and see and hear from this particular vessel. And that deepens the illusion of being, you know, a separate self. And so I had the, the opposite view. I knew that I wasn't a separate self, but yet it appeared, you know, when I didn't know what was going on yet, when I hadn't really clarified this, it appeared as if, huh, when I touch this, only I can feel it. How does that work? I, it was the most astounding thing. Like even here sitting, how did it end up that I'm actually sitting having a discussion with Rick and all these you know, beautiful people around the world who are listening in? How did that happen? It's like an astounding thing. I am. No, I am. I mean, over decades, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that, you know, points us in the direction of the mystery of being. You see, ultimately, you know, yes, spiritual teachers have pointers and they point, but ultimately the depth of what this is is so far beyond our mind. You know, we we see with with the deepening in this journey that, I mean, nothing I ever thought about this, even as I was grappling to try and make sense of my experience and move forward, nothing I ever thought about what it would look like ended up looking that way. It, it's I mean, like even now, it's a mystery that is very, very difficult to speak about. And yet it's felt and it's lived in the being. And so, yes, there are still times, even though I've done all this work and, you know, teaching people and whatever, every now and again, it's still, wow, the mystery, the, the awe, the beauty of just this. And, you know, the, the profundity of the fact that it can appear as, as a separate self, but, but it's not. Here I am apparently talking to Rick and yet I know that what is talking here is awareness is actually conversing with itself. It's a sublime mystery. It's extraordinarily beautiful. And it speaks to the intelligence that, that we are, that is the source energy. Okay, now a couple of questions have come in from you, from listeners, and I want to ask those. But since we're on this topic, and anyone who listens to this show regularly knows that this is kind of a Zen Cohen for me, trying to figure out this self separate self thing. Uh, <laughs> I've uh, I did one thing with Adya Shanti and Susanna Marie dedicated to this topic. We you know falling away of a sense of separate self, and um, 
so let me go on for just a minute about this and then have you respond. Um, I mean, in physics, they would tell you that anything which appears to be physical, like my fist, if you go down microscopically enough, you find that there's nothing physical whatsoever. There's no fist. There's nothing resembling a fist. It's all just up quarks, down quarks, and electrons, you know, which <laughs> there's no individuality. There's, that's the, or even more fundamentally than that, perhaps there's some vacuum state or unified field uh, from which quarks and electrons arise. Um, so there is, and, and that would be the ultimate reality. So, and if it's the ultimate reality, it's probably the only reality. And yet, there's this appearance of manifestation and um and there are various levels of manifestation between the, the pure unmanifest and all the grosser realms um so wouldn't it be true to say in terms of separate self and not not having a self and so on that um you know you're you're, you're a person but you're not only a person. In fact, you're not fundamentally a person. You're not essentially a person. But there's still some kind of manif manifest value of personhood, of selfhood, or, or whatever that makes living possible. Would that would that be true or not so much? Not to so your much. Experience and understanding. You know what I found as this deepened here is that the sense of self that I thought I was has radically shifted. And there were periods where I where I felt like you've just described where there's some way that we can make this all fit. But the deeper one goes, one sees ultimately that what you presume as a self, it's none other than a collection, a very complex and a very beautiful, we're not demeaning this in any way, a very complex, a very beautiful identification with all the content of experience. So the way that I explain this is that, all that is is consciousness. Consciousness arises and manifests this body-mind that we call Rick. When it arises, you know, in, in infancy, what happens because this consciousness arises in a vessel that's not yet fully developed, the con conditioning occurs where the consciousness becomes identified with the content of the awareness. So every thought and feeling we have and that starts at you know as an infant, maybe even in in, in utero. So what we what the consciousness really has learned to do is really identify with every thought form and every feeling, and we call that my experience. So the question is, who is the my that's having this experience? If you look really deeply, and over time it it, it be becomes revealed that the only thing that's going on there, in truth, is that consciousness is manifesting a body-mind. This body-mind is, you know, their thoughts produced. You're not producing them. We don't create our own thoughts. But through a very complex interaction of this body-mind with its environment, the thoughts become conditioned and patterned in a particular way. And, of course, that the way the thoughts and feelings and experience arise is also connected to genetics and epigenetics. So it's a very complex thing. Basically, we've got a bundle of consciousness that's completely identified with the content of its own, of, of its experience. As we go deeper spiritually, that entanglement unwinds and we can come to a point where we see that what you call the person actually is a body mind with certain DNA but the, the essential identity there is pure consciousness. 
there isn't actually an entity, but there isn't an entity in there called Rick. There isn't something that you can identify even as Rickness. And there's, yet a, there's body a body mind, mind. But, you know. Well, if there's a body, why not a subtle body? Why, why not the, uh, uh, sort of a jiva, which, which perhaps um, transmigrates from body to body? Or, and people talk of ascended masters, you know, who enlightened beings who are still, you know, even though they became enlightened, they're still functioning on, from some level of creation or something like that. Hard to explain those things. But if we look and feel deeper, what we see is that there's less and less of anything that looks like a self. There is not an entity, and even these things that we we talk about, like reincarnation or ascended masters, looking from a certain view, you can see that actually some of those are pretty simplistic attempts to explain something complex that we don't understand. That from where I sit, I don't see reincarnation at all. I, I see energy. I see a oneness that is manifesting in, in millions of forms, trillions of forms, infinite forms. I think what causes the issue is that as human beings, we have this highly developed brain that's capable of self-reflection, and that creates a real sticking point there. If we had to look at nature, for example, and look at a willow tree and an oak tree, we wouldn't be having this dilemma. We have oak and we have willow. They're two different forms. But you don't presume that there's a Mr. Oak inside the oak and a Mr. Willow inside the willow. You see, there's a way... And one may not be aware of it until you look deeply, but there's a deep unconscious presumption of a kind of an entity, a self that actually is a kind of an entity somehow in a mysterious way, sort of inside this body mind. There is no such thing. It, it doesn't it doesn't occur. So in a way, you and I are like an oak tree or a willow tree. There's an oak tree, here's a willow tree, there's a blue rock and here's a brown rock. We are simply forms that consciousness manifests and these particular forms happen to have a very highly developed you know fu- brain function where, which makes us capable of self-reflection that's the function that creates this apparent identity it doesn't occur in any other other living forms that we are aware of and the deeper you go the more you see that that whole thing is an illusion it doesn't exist in the way we think it, it does at all the deeper you go, the more you see that there is just life force. There is just life energy. Everything is God, and it's equally God. And I, when, I, when I'm saying equally, I don't just mean Rick and me and everybody watching, you know, all those engaged in spiritual practice. I'm talking about an earthworm and a rock and a cloud and Jupiter and the formless. All of it is equally a pure manifestation of this consciousness, yeah, there's a, a couple points here. I don't know. I, I'm not going to belabor this too long because I could go on all day. Um, but um, firstly, a couple of Sanskrit things. In, in, in Vedanta, there's one term called mitya, which means dependent reality. And they use the example of jewelry or pots. You know, pots are made of clay. And really, there's no pot. There's only clay. And yet, there, there's a form of a pot which you can do things with. Um, and so they use that to sort of refer just you know come to terms with the fact that we have all these apparent forms and body minds and everything else which are essentially nothing other than god or nothing other than brahman even though they appear to have forms um but so there's a sort of a concession to um rel- to relative reality for the sake of practicality you know pots jewelry whatever um we we know that ultimately they don't exist but relatively we say yeah 
fine. And um, and then there's the, also the notion, another one, another term of lesha vidya, which means faint remains of ignorance. And it's said that without some faint remains, which is sometimes metaphorically described as like grease on your palm after you've thrown off a butterball, but your 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 palm is still greasy. With, without that faint remains, living wouldn't be possible. There has to be some ability to distinguish between body and wall and body and rock and <laughs> and whatnot. Um, and again. In the same breath, they would say, ultimately, there is no self, but relatively, there's some kind of manifestation and perhaps even a, a subtle self, just just as there's a gross body, there could be a subtle body, and the whole package makes you know it possible to live and to to embody the ultimate reality as a living reality. And just before I stop, just here's a quote from Winnie the Pooh. Uh, I think this must have been Eeyore. The quote is, there must be somebody there because somebody must have said nobody. Right. Well, you know, this is a this is a really deep inquiry. It's not actually possible to settle this matter conceptually. There are really and look, it's interesting to have this discussion and maybe those listening might be intrigued to look deeper and I would encourage you to do so. With deep practices pointers and, you know, certain kinds of teaching or teachers one can be pointed to actually explore this territory. For example, no self territory. I work with that with people who have come to a stage where they're ready to do those inquiries. Not before, because there's a, there's a certain readiness and capacity that has to be there. Otherwise, it's just a conceptual. It's a conceptual inquiry, and you know all I can give people then are new beliefs that they will attach to. Like, okay, now I know I don't have a self. Well, that's completely beside the point. No self is not an experience. It's more like a point of view. And it's not one you can will yourself into through reading a book or watching some YouTube videos. It's it's a process of dissolution. Right. And if you, if you get a severe toothache, you might begin to feel, well, right. hey, maybe I well, do even have a that, you see, the, the that <laughs> doesn't pertain to a self. It just means that there's, you know, this particular body mind is an ache in the tooth of this body mind. And who's experiencing that? Yeah. The awareness itself, that's what I would say. Yeah, but the awareness is, but you're experiencing that toothache. Not uh, you, Even though you and I are the same awareness, the, the toothache is being felt there in Vancouver, not here in Iowa. And so, you know, so how come, this is what you were saying earlier, how come universal awareness seems to have been localized into one right. body in one that's place? That's a very confusing thing that you can only come to see in your own experience. And what I'm saying is that, it doesn't, it doesn't refer to a self. There isn't a self. The self is really a, it's a conclusion that we've drawn unconsciously due to the way this consciousness arises in this particular body-mind. And so when you say, you know, consciousness is arising here as Leslie or, you know, there's a Leslie consciousness, I would say, no, that's not true. There isn't a Leslie consciousness. I don't even see this as a fragment of consciousness, it, there isn't actually a Leslie in the way that we think there is. There is this body-mind, like there's an oak tree. that We don't call the oak tree Mr. Oak, as I said. We just call it an oak tree. There's a body-mind here. And, yes, it's more complex than an oak tree. It's got a different kind of a brain, um, et cetera, et cetera, different kinds of capacities. But that doesn't imply that there is an entity inside there called self. And with certain inquiries and looking very deeply and – 
if our if our awarenesses expand and stabilize sufficiently in certain areas, we, you can come to see this in your own experience. But it's not something you know. I I see some particular groups are looking at doing this, you know, as a weekend inquiry or something. It's not, in my view, it's not in the nature of that. You're just left with a whole lot of beliefs and, uh, you know, dialogue that could be riveting and interesting. But Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to move on because I've been thinking about this for years and we're not going to resolve it now. And I believe you. Uh, it's just that it's, I don't totally get it as fully as I believe it can be gotten. But I find it interesting and perhaps beneficial for me to keep pondering it maybe this you know no 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 I, but i, I just spend your if i could just add one point there rick so what i'm basically saying is the reason that you can't see it in the way that you know you've been pondering it for years and you've looked at pointers and here we are discussing it it's because of the point of view that you've got it's because of certain things that you are still holding on to or attached to and when those are pointed out to you very directly and you work with that in a certain kind of a way, you can come to see something else. There are certain way, types of inquiries and really deep pointers one can use to show you specifically where you are still holding on to certain erroneous views. That will allow you to shift your point of view, because I know you have the background in you know some of the other practices like meditation. That then allows the point of view to shift where you can begin to see something from a literally a different point of view and then it'll start to dawn it's like oh my goodness you mean that's what those pointers were referring to and that's been my experience you know over a long period of time the dawning of the meaning or the the reality of certain pointers that i read 10 20 years ago it's like oh my goodness i always thought i knew what that meant but now now i actually see it you know as jesus said you know when he came to a point where this was abiding realization for him, if, if we could use those, those terms, it was like, now I have new eyes, you know, I'm reborn, I'm born as a child. I mean, that's literally what it feels. You see something you've read a thousand times, but it's seen from a different, completely different vantage point. And that point of view is not a mental thing that you can get there conceptually. It's a whole being function. And the only way we can get there, in my view, is through a process of dissolution. It's not about attaining anything. It's not, you can't read 10 more books or ponder it again. I, in fact, I don't think you, you'll get there that way. But with certain kinds of practices that help in the true dissolution, uh, like some of the Zogshan practices, for example, and certain kinds of pointing, or possibly even certain shadow aspects, there may be certain tendencies you have to cling to a self-sense, and that will color your view quite considerably. So it kind of locks you into a point of view where this is just not, you can't see it. It's not within your purview. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's kind of a both end thing. I mean, you know, there's, there's no one home and at the same, I want to put it succinctly. I, 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 I often feel like I'm everywhere. I'm nowhere. And I'm right here. And all those three things coexist quite nicely. Not together. beautiful, yeah. right? <laughs> and and that's that's an abiding thing. And and maybe the maybe there's an ebb and flow between you know balance between the three com- components. Sometimes one seems to be more predominant than the other, but they're all all there to to some degree all the time. 
for what it's worth. Okay, so um, let's not beat this one to death too much more. Uh, we'll come back to it maybe someday. Um, maybe I'll even do a session with you sometime. You can see if you can crack that shell. But uh, I want to ask you a few questions that people have sent in. So this is from Tim in Vernon, Canada. I don't know if that's anywhere near you. Um, Tim asks, uh, prior to directly experiencing the truth of ourselves, is there any aspect or quality of our relative conditioned experience that we can actually trust as we attempt to open? Hmm. Not really. I would say basically the whole thing is an illusion. However, having said that, I want to add that that is not just a kind of a wasteful, you know, oh, well, that's, you know, everybody's walking around as a kind of a, an egoic self, what a waste of energy, what a waste of time, what a, what a useless situation. There's, this is the, the paradox of really deep, you know, realization is you see that even though that is the case, what is true is that being who's completely identified with their limited consciousness, with the ego consciousness, is pure consciousness itself. The essence there is pure consciousness. So I want to just add that in. Otherwise, it sounds, you know, very dismissive and very – I think what we what we come to see, and you see this more as you go deeper and deeper, is that basically there's nothing in the condition, in, in the condition view or the conventional view that is true. It's not – it's just not right. And yet there is – the essence is there. It's just been covered over by all of these layers. And there are times when maybe individuals who've never done any spiritual practice might come into contact or feel that essence. And sometimes people feel it in the form of an intuition or a sense of connection with the oneness of all when they're watching a sunset or something. So it's not, it, it doesn't mean that because the conditioning is very strong that there is absolutely no access to essence. Essence is completely there. It's just very hard to access it. But in terms of something that you can trust, no. The only thing I would say, the orienting point for someone who's not done any spiritual practice is your own intuition. However, having said that, what your own intuition is when you're still you know, um, identified with a separate self is very colored by your own point of view. So it's not really intuition. It's a kind of a still, it's a kind of a, uh, an appendage really of your ego, but still there may be little, little aspects of the essence that can kind of be felt through that. The light can be felt through that and you want to trust that. And then, you know, for, Tim, I would encourage you to find, a teaching or a teacher that you resonate with and engage deeply. Because if you simply attempt to deepen in your own point of view, in your own life, in your own self, by reading a few books or whatever, if one is really serious, it's not going to go deep enough. Because what you're doing is you're trying to find something within the point of view that you're already existing in. It's like you're in a bubble. The ego is like a bubble. It creates a whole world, a virtual reality world, I call it. You're looking for truth in your own virtual reality world. It's not possible to do that, which is why we need teachings and, and practices like meditation that allow you to begin to access something outside of this bubble. Meditation does that. And deep pointers and teachings do that. They show you the pathway out of your bubble to something else. Good. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, the thing you said about intuition, there's that verse in the Bible about seeing through a glass darkly, you know, and then later on it becomes clear. So, you know, I mean, pure consciousness is there or we wouldn't be conscious. That's that's why we are conscious. But but it's filtered or occluded to a great extent. And and you, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about purification, um, and we've talked about the, ins- the nervous system as a sort of an instrument of the divine through which that is lived. So the instrument needs to be continually fine-tuned and, and purified and rendered more and more capable of reflecting f- clearly and fully this sort of inner, inner awareness. Um, and there's a great discussion about this in the, in the spiritual literature and, you know, talk of samskaras and kleshas and sattva rajas and tamas and all these ex- and kundalini mechanics and all sorts of explanations as to how the nervous system might not be functioning uh, up to its full capacity for expressing pure awareness and how it might be made better able to do so. Okay, so here's another one from someone named Kranti in Baltimore. Um, uh, over the, and this looks like, an, judging from the last name, it looks like an Indian person. Um, over the ages, some yogis immediately left the body after the final stage of realization, whereas New Age enlightened people seem to stick to the body until they die naturally. How do you explain this contrasting behavior? And I would actually question the question because if you read all the Vedic literature and the literature of other things, people don't just check out as soon as they get enlightened. They, they stick around and usually teach people. So I'm not sure what she means by that. But do you have a response to that question? Not particularly. I think, again, you know, that, that, that particular reference comes from a certain teaching with a certain tradition, a certain point of view. I mean, the Buddha I stuck around, Shankara stuck around, way. Ramana stuck around, right. you know, so... Right. I think basically the way I would see it more is that the, you know, the, the body mind, the vessel itself has a certain destiny that will live itself out. I think, you know, all that actually happens with enlightenment is that you come to see that you are not the body mind. You are not this vessel that you thought you were. I remain as I am. And the body mind, as Nisargadatta said, continues its its destiny. So that, you know, if the destiny of the body is to live until you're 90 or 100 or 52, then so be it. Um, yeah, okay. Personally, I think it's necessary, I think, for for those whose destiny it is to stick around to do so. And, of course, they don't choose not to because it's their destiny. But if they didn't, then we wouldn't have all these great you know, teachings and, and, teachings. and teachers who have had such a profound impact on humanity over over thousands of years. So so thank God that they don't just sort of check out as soon as awakening takes place. Here's a question from David in Grass Valley. What do you feel is the best practice for deepening the experience of pure awareness while strengthening its participation in embodiment? I would say uh, one of the Zogshin liberation practices. Now, I don't know if David can access that in some way i can give you a little sense of it i do i do the 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 teachings are very profound unfortunately they're not very accessible in terms of literature because a lot of those teachers didn't write books that particular culture that particular tradition is more an oral tradition the teacher teaches by mentoring and feeling the energy of the student and working with you to guide you in the, in the practice of these, of these things. So there are a few books available, but 
they're very much written in the idiom of Tibetan and Nepalese culture and not particularly accessible to Westerners who don't understand that culture. Um, so basically, if I could summarize it, it's, uh, as I was referring to before, what one learns to do with meditation, if one is doing it correctly, is begin to have no relationship to your thoughts and feelings. There's a practice in meditation where you learn to rest as the spacious awareness that is not contracted down or identified with particular forms such as thought and feeling, my experience. So what that opens up in you, for anybody who's meditated, and I'm, I'm sure you can resonate with this, Rick, is you feel a sense of spaciousness, even now as, as we sit here together and those watching. Um, if you allow the attention to open beyond your normal your, your normal awareness, it's like, okay, here's a glass, and here I'm lazy, I'm sitting in a chair. If we just simply sit and relax, and without paying attention to anything in particular, any object or what do I have to do tomorrow or what I'm doing you know, uh, next week or my to-do list, if we just sit and relax and allow the awareness to open up into almost a kind of a feeling of spaciousness, allow yourself to sink deeply into the body, be very present in the body, and allow the attention to open up into a spaciousness. Thoughts and feelings might arise in that spaciousness, but for right now, we're not going to pay attention to any of those. A hooting car might happen outside or someone might knock on the door. Here we are. We're just simply here. The more one is practiced at doing this, the more what you're doing is actually literally physiologically, experientially doing this. It's not a mental exercise where you're sitting in your chair and saying, well, I'm not going to pay attention to thought. You feel, it's a whole be being feeling of, there's a sense of spaciousness. It's like the being starts to expand. Like right now, you can even feel the awareness expand beyond the body and just rest out in the field itself as a kind of soft, open spaciousness. It's almost like a point of view. Like imagine zooming out. Imagine you're focused very tightly on a, you know, an object as a photographer or something, and you allow the awareness to expand so that it zooms out. So this is essentially what we're doing. You're allowing it, the attention to expand out and rest deeply as the awareness you are, whilst not paying any attention to the thoughts and feelings that are arising or the experience. Let's say you're doing that and then you suddenly realize that you've been daydreaming for five minutes off on something else. What do you do then? Right. You simply bring yourself back. Mm, to the spaciousness. So you're right. You just, and then you realize, okay, I was off. Right. You just simply very quietly bring yourself back. So not a demeaning of that or not a beating yourself up for having doing that. It's like you bring yourself back. The more practice you are doing it, you're not going to really drift off. You're simply going to learn to be utterly present right here now with absolutely no relationship to thought and feeling. When it's gone really deep, that's what the practice feels like. It's like you do in meditation, but you're doing it with your eyes open. And here we're speaking. It's much harder to do it with your eyes open and while you're speaking, which is why meditation, we learn this practice in meditation with eyes closed, 
quietly on your own, you're not speaking. Because as soon as you're engaged, you know, in speaking, all sorts of other impulses and your own conditioned patterns arise. You notice things in the environment, it triggers you. Suddenly the attention is off on, you know, looking at all these shiny objects around you. So it's much harder, but it's possible to do. So essentially what you're doing is you're, you're transmuting or allowing the energy of the meditation to be the energy that you're relating to the other person with now as we're speaking together. Soft, open, spacious, clear, thoughts and feelings arise. And as you practice with this more deeply, you learn to see what those thoughts and feelings are and which of them trigger you and which of them sort of kick in certain patterns that will then um, create almost a, a hamster wheel situation where the patterning gets stronger and stronger and you get really drawn into it, almost like an, a negative spiral. Um, so as we're, you know, learning to see where we're triggered and what the patterning is, we learn to let go of that. So instead of, if you understand that that's just a button being pushed, your own button being pushed by a certain event or circumstance or situation arising, it's possible at a certain point to actually not allow yourself to go in that direction. You simply see, I don't need my button to be pushed. I know that this is not, that the, the, the patterning that's arising is actually not me. I know it's it doesn't define me or my the way I am or it's simply a pattern that I've learned to sort of identify with. And, you know, people do this in all sorts of ways in life. People who go on a diet or people who learn to ride a bike or we, we're practicing this fundamental movement all the time in different ways. In the spiritual practices, it's just a much more subtle, deeper version of the practice. So we learn to actually not relate to our experience through attaching to thoughts and feelings and creating a virtual reality world that defines me. In a, in a way, by identifying with thoughts and feelings and our own experience, we've, we've taken this infinite reality and we've condensed it down into a pinprick and we've called, we put a, put a flag on it and said, this is Rick, <laughs> this, is, this is Leslie, this is me. When in fact, what's actually there is an infinite field of consciousness. In a way, it's an arbitrary marker. The fact that you say Rick is the body-mind is in, in a way an arbitrary marker. I'm saying the physicality of the body and the five senses is what helps create that illusion. But why do you define your experience as limited to your physicality, you see? Anyway, so these are some of the things you begin to see when you do this practice. It's like, okay, none of these patterns that are arising are actually me. What if I am actually the awareness that sees the pattern, but not the pattern itself? Now, it, pro thousands of people are going to listen to this interview, and uh, perhaps we could, let's round this out a little bit, what, you're, what you've been saying now, so as to let people give people something they can actually sit down and try. Uh, they can even pause the interview right now and sit and do this, or they could you know, do it tonight when they get home or something like that. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple questions that 
that, that these people might ask to, so they have a little bit more instruction. One would be, um, like, for instance, I asked you about wandering off on thoughts. Another would be, like, let's say you're not wandering off. You're very much aware that you're sitting there, but you're feeling sleepy or you're feeling anxious or you're feeling bored or you're feeling antsy and you don't feel like sitting there any longer. What should you do then? Right. So what you would look at is where that movement is arising from. So, for example, you're feeling bored. What is boredom? Where is that arising from? So I make a distinction between two facets of your being. One of the facets is what is true. It's this pure, infinite field of consciousness that you are. The other is a very contracted, narrow field that you've defined yourself as in the body-mind. So what we want to learn to discriminate between is whether you're actually acting from the energy and the attention and the point of view of the self-sense or whether that movement that's arising is coming from the pure consciousness itself. So when something like boredom is arising, and this is where you know one has to look and learn about a number of different areas, it's one of the classic qualities of the ego <laughs> to be bored. I will say that pure awareness, it doesn't have a capacity, it does, doesn't get bored. There's no boredom in pure awareness. So the moment boredom is arising, one knows, okay, where is that arising from? That's a pattern arising from the self-sense. And the pattern arising from the self-sense, you know, can take the form of boredom either due to a restlessness that the basically the egoic consciousness has. It's a very restless energy. It can be stuff in the physiology in too. Right. It can, it can it can be in the physiology too. And there's also a kind of a, a kind of an inertia. It's got two flip sides. The egoic energy tends to either be restless. You'll notice people, some people who are new meditators, for example, will sit down to meditate. And within a few minutes, they need to reach out and check their cell phone or wonder what's happening on Facebook. Or can you see it's that restless energy? It's like the, the self sense when it's not practiced enough is very bored with just being. So if you're feeling the restlessness, let's say, do you want to try to tune into the physiological counterpart of it? Like, you know, because restlessness and boredom are, they have a mental connotation to some extent, but they, they perhaps also have a physiological counterpart where you're going to find some agitation in your solar plexus or some, I don't know, some tension in your head or something that is corresponding to this unsettled experience you're having do you, do you want to sort of shift your attention to the physiology or what would you advise i would say it depends on the individual and how pronounced and prevalent this issue is if it's happening all the time it sounds like it's quite a severe strong pattern if it's not what i would generally recommend and as i say one has to work with the individual to see what's what's needed but the 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 most, the simplest course of action or the simplest advice I can give is to recognize this movement of boredom is not coming from the deepest part of me. It's not coming from my true nature. It's not coming from this expansive field of consciousness. It's a movement of the contracted energy. And therefore, that's a revelatory thing. You've realized, wow, right now I'm actually identified with the limited consciousness. So how about I simply let that go? If you have some practice with meditation and a few other practices, I would advise you to simply say, well, 
So you're sitting here, suddenly you feel bored and the tendency is like, okay, I've got to reach for my cell phone or maybe turn on the TV because I you know, want to alleviate this boredom. I would say simply see that you're actually acting from a limited point of your own consciousness. You're acting from the contracted self sense. So simply let it go. Thank you very much. I'm not going to do that. And what I would suggest you do then is see if you can open more deeply into the spaciousness again. Like during a meditation, for example, if you're 10 minutes into your meditation and you feel a restless energy and you've committed to meditate for an hour, unless you know, you're know you not a very good practitioner, you're not going to jump up after 10 minutes and go running to follow this lower impulse that's calling you. You simply say, no, I've committed to sit here for an hour. There's a movement arising in me. It's my ego. It's not a true movement. It's simply a conditioned pattern. So I simply let it go and I open the energy, relax the energy, relax more deeply into the field itself and see if you can simply let it go. Like you, you know, you would let something go. A car is hooting in the distance, pay no attention to it. So the way I describe this when I teach meditation and some of these practices is I say, that ultimately the depth of your consciousness, this deeper part of you, it's like a really deep ocean. Imagine you're, you're meditating or you're doing a practice and you've got this boredom. What are you? Are you a leaf or a little log floating on the surface of this profound ocean or are you the ocean itself? Now, egoic consciousness tends to be identified with the surface. A little leaf falls, you know, a little bit of boredom comes, a thought arises, and we quickly the consciousness or the attention moves to the surface or is immediately there wanting to pay attention to each leaf falling on your surface. What you want to do is recognize, okay, there's a leaf that's fallen on my surface. I'm not that leaf. Do I need to go and examine every leaf that falls on my surface? No. So I simply relax and allow myself to rest in the depth of the stillness that I am. So instead of rushing to the surface, to grasp and pay attention to every thought or feeling or movement or experience or an ache in my knee or now I'm feeling bored or now I'm thirsty. Oh, suddenly I feel very tired. Leaves on my surface. Let that go. The, you know, a leaf can, leaf can stay on the surface. And what am I going to do? I'm going to allow myself to rest and sink even deeper into the depths of the ocean. The more you practice doing that, the more you feel yourself anchored and rested in the depth of the ocean. You might glance up and see a pile of leaves falling on your surface. doesn't really matter. In fact, if you're very deeply grounded in the depth of the ocean, it doesn't matter if a typhoon is blowing up on the surface. Can you see? That's it's a really good metaphor. And that's literally what it feels like in the being. So the feeling of boredom arises. I know what it is. It's a leaf on my surface. Let it go. What am I? I am that which is the depth of the ocean. And so physiologically, experientially, energetically, I allow my consciousness to expand and to rest and sink into that depth. And really, what, that's a very profound practice one is doing then because what you're practicing is a mastery of is – is a kind of a mastery – who's the master of the being is the the true consciousness or our true nature the master or is the egoic consciousness or the self you know the the self sense the master because if if whatever is arising in the world or your awareness can 
pull you to act and to respond to it, no matter what it is, then you're enslaved to your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, and all the experience around you. Whereas if you can see what's arising and make a choice how you want to respond to it, ah, there's a leaf on my surface, I might just go up and take a look. Or, no, thank you, I'm relaxing and sitting in my meditation or whatever. I'm not going to do that. Or I know it's a movement from the ego or the the mind, and therefore I'm not going to respond to this movement of boredom. What you then do is practice to actually engage from this deeper place of your being. That strengthens and deepens your capacity to live from this deeper place. If you continue with that and apply various other practices and deeper looking, and you learn to actually shift the center of the gravity of the being. So instead of, you know, being having a knee-jerk response to every thought, feeling, and experience that arises, you're responding from a clear spaciousness, which ultimately you will see is a completely different consciousness. It's not the same. So the 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 awareness that will run after and be tricked into or respond to every thought, feeling, and experience is what I would call the conditioned mind. The reason we do that is because we are conditioned to do that. We're conditioned and we believe that those things are real and they're true and they're me. I'm feeling bored. Who's feeling bored? I am. I define myself as the one who's feeling bored right now, and therefore I need to respond or react to that particular movement. From a place of realization, you don't see it that way. A movement of boredom arises. You don't see it as you at all. It's just a movement. It's like a cloud floating in the sky or a leaf landing on your surface. And over time, if you don't react to each and every leaf falling on your surface, the leaves leaves fall less and less frequently. You respond to them less and less. They thin out, you could say. The egoic patterning thins out, weakens, and softens to a point where there's very few leaves landing on your surface, very few thoughts kind of coming in, and you're not attached to them. You can see them for what they are because what you've done is purified the being to such an extent that you are resting in the steps of being at all times, under all circumstances, in all places, and you're not able to be pulled or swayed by anything that's occurring in the world in terms of a circumstance, someone's action, your own thoughts, your own feelings, and your own experience. And yes, it starts with things like a feeling of boredom or, you know, I've committed to do this practice, but now I need to sleep, right? (laughs) Guess what that is? You know, it's the part of you that actually doesn't want to do the practice, which would be the self-sense. Could also be that you need some sleep. I mean, if you've been sleep deprived. And and, and if you have been sleep deprived, then it's a very practical way of looking at it. Okay, I feel that in the body. Sometimes when you settle into meditation, you know, what you you get more in touch with what you need and what what your physiology needs, yeah. Exactly. And if that would be the case, then that then you would simply take a nap when yeah. you need to. You I, know, I usually you take a nap every afternoon before I meditate just to get right. rid of any so residual fatigue, and then meditation is much more clear. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple more practical questions. You know, we've been going on about the importance of practice and meditation and so on. Um, most of the people I know who learn to meditate, I, I probably I taught about a thousand people back when I was teaching. Um, probably they end up. Just dropping off, you know, they don't they don't stick to it regularly. Um, I, I, of course, I know many others who have been doing it for decades. But what would you two two part question? What would you say as a tip for 
getting yourself to meditate regularly uh, and sticking with it. And secondly, what sort of daily routine? You mentioned an hour. An hour might be a bit much for busy people, people with families and so on. Um, you know, what would, what would you recommend that the average person who is fairly busy can actually commit to and what and and how would you help them commit to it and and stick to it so the, this this whole conversation we're having isn't just some memory oh yeah i remember that lady she said i should meditate well it's been six months and i haven't done it so you know, what would you say <laughs> okay the first thing i would say is i would situate the meditation in a context that makes sense if i wouldn't recommend someone coming to this cold simply just decides I'm going to meditate and hope for the best. With no instruction or anything. Very little I, I is mean, going we've to be given some instruction here, but you probably would recommend, and I think I would recommend something a little bit more personalized and specific. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, one-on-one. Right. Now, you know, when I work with people, we might spend two hours or three hours doing something and then they go and practice it and then I come back and give them feedback, you know. It's got to be done in depth and it's got to be done properly. But wherever people are, you want to situate your meditation in the right context. It's not something you just want to grab hold of. You know, it's, uh, hopefully I can just sit there with my eyes closed and something serious is going to happen. It's just not. Basically, you're going to have the self-sense or the ego simply sitting meditating. And that's not, you know, it might achieve a little bit, but very, very little. So educate yourself about what meditation is. Ideally, get some instruction from, you know, someone who's teaching meditation in your local area, teacher, whatever the case may be. So that's step number one. Know what you're doing and get feedback. There's some practical stuff too, like, you know, turn off your phone, tell your family you're going to do it, tell them not to bother you for 20 minutes or however long you're going to be in there. You know, I mean, just sort of Make a few preparations. Don't sit down in the middle of the living room when the kids are trying to watch television or something. You have to sort of... No, definitely not. That's not going to work. So, yeah, quiet space, some time, you know, and, and commit to what you're doing. Don't sit for five minutes and then reach for your cell phone. That is not meditation. So, you see, what you're practicing then is a kind of a rigor and a discipline, which will get you somewhere. So, but first, some instruction. And, you know, if you don't have a teacher in your local area, whatever, a book, some YouTube videos, at least something to educate you. The second thing that I would recommend is I think, in my experience, meditation on its own is not that helpful. I would always combine it with other things. So, again, engage in something that you feel resonates with you, a teaching, a teacher, a community. Start with some YouTube videos if you like, some really deep books, uh, Nisargadatta, I Am That, whatever. There's some really lovely books. These are a starting point. They, you know, they're not going to take you particularly deep, but it's a good orienting place. And I generally recommend inquiry and additional practices alongside meditation because what I've seen is that people who only meditate, they find even when they're meditating so-called quite well or they, they're doing the practice quite accurately or efficiently, there is not the benefit that they thought they were going to get because there are other things that are still in play that meditation is not going to address. And things like additional practices and inquiries particularly are going to be very helpful for that. So educate yourself about, you know, the spiritual direction you're interested in, in in whatever way you can, that will enliven and give you a context for your meditation. If you're just doing meditation on its own, Generally, people who do that end up dropping the meditation after a while. It gets boring. They don't really see results, and they don't really know what to expect and what to look for. So that's what I would suggest. Yeah, those are good points. Um, I think 
understanding is uh, there's like two legs to spiritual progress in my book understanding and experience and you have to kind of you have to walk you have to sort of use both legs um and understanding without experience you can um you know, get top heavy, as we were saying earlier, you can mistake intellectual understanding for realization experience without understanding. You can, uh, lose inspiration. Uh, you can be, uh, fearful of, of something that's actually very beautiful because it's so diff- different and, and you have no context for it. So, and, and it's not you and I, it, you and I aren't just saying this. I mean, this is stuff that goes back thousands of years. Again, the traditions all advocated, you know, clear understanding and deep experience exactly. as, as a full package, you know. As a full package, right, right. So, you know, when when one works with people, you begin to identify as a teacher that there are a number of facets that really keep people stuck. And meditation only deals with one or two of those facets. That's why on its own, it, it, you know, it doesn't take you far enough. And if you don't deepen your understanding in other areas, then you'll become very frustrated with the meditation. If you think meditation is the be all and end all, it isn't. It, it, you know, rightly done, it can be very, very it's one, useful. one leg of the stool. <laughs> it's one leg of a stool, and I would say you know, maybe there are about eight legs of the stool. There are. Um, According to Patanjali, that's exactly how many there were. Oh, okay. Ash- well, beautiful. Ashtanga yoga means <laughs> eight, eight limbs. Okay. And, there we go. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, when one engages with a teaching that you resonate with, and a teacher that you trust and that you feel, feel is authentic, what you will then engage are these eight legs. So when I work with people, I'm tuning into their energy. I'm feeling them. I'm, you know, like even as we're speaking now, each sentence you utter really reveals your point of view, where you're standing, what's important to you, the extent to which you're identified with the self-sense that you, you know, that that is connected with this body-mind, and a number of other things that really give the teacher deep clues as to how to guide you and that's how one can then you know work with these eight different legs for example if they are eight i mean i yeah there's different models obviously they're different exactly they're different facets that need to be engaged in order to untangle this ball of identification or you know sort of soften and dissolve ultimately this virtual reality world that we inhabit so this is why it's quite challenging to do on your own rick because you know, as much as teachers might say this, it can't really be heard from the point of view of the self-sense. We say things like there is nothing to attain. And truly, I will say there is nothing to attain. This is not, completely not, absolutely not about the gaining of additional knowledge, like you're building a big house. Yes, knowledge can be gained, but in a certain context, and that knowledge ultimately is surrendered in in. In a, in, a, in a movement and in a sort of a blossoming that allows a completely different consciousness to flower in you. Now, to the mind, that might sound like gobbledygook. It's like, what the hell? How do I do that? <laughs> right. Well, that's why we've got, you know, thousands of years of teachings to help give us practices and depth teachings that can orient you. So, you know, one of the deepest things that I've seen and learned is that it's not about acquiring more and more conceptual knowledge. The conceptual mind is not able to understand the mystery of being. So 
paradoxically, yes, we do need knowledge, but that kind of knowledge needs to exactly. And it really feeds into a deep understanding of really ultimately what your patterning is, where you're stuck, where you're still holding on, which then allows you to no longer be be blinded and be blind to the patterning that's engaging you. So it's a kind of a stepping stone to help you sort of step out of the patterning. But ultimately, the stepping out of the patterning, all of it is a dissolution. Everything is about the dissolving of everything you thought you knew. Everything that you thought was true, who Rick is, what he's been his whole life, everything you've you know learned from the 400 people you've interviewed and the meditation you've done in your own experience, that needs to be surrendered to what? To something much deeper, the intelligence of the being, which is more like a field of energy that doesn't work through the conditioned mind. Yes, it uses the mind. The mind is part of this vessel, but the mind in a clear form, not in a conditioned form. So I'm not you know, denying or denouncing mind. I'm saying there are two functions of mind. Before we are stably realized, we function in the conditioned mode. Basically, one is run by your own thoughts and feelings and your own experience, and everything that arises in your own, in the contents of your being, basically you identify with. You think everything that you experience is real and it's true, and that's what reality is, and guess what? That's me. No, it's not. And so that conditioned mind has to be surrendered or relinquished to allow something different to blossom. And that different teachings refer to it in different ways. I refer to it as clear mind, where this thing here, the gray matter here, becomes a, a clear vessel for the energy and the consciousness that's flowing through it. No longer is it distorting, amplifying, you know, twisting things around a self-sense, which is self-oriented, which causes you to look at things in a particular way, self-referencing everything, not just what's out there, but what does it mean about me and how do I relate to it and what am I going to get from it? You see, that's what a self-sense does. It twists the entire point of view and it's also very, very limited. So as these patterns dissolve, what opens up is is the, this clarity which functions through all aspects of the being. The heart is soft, open, and clarified. It's undefended. It, it's not making anything right or wrong. It doesn't need to attack. It doesn't need to defend. The energetic systems are unblocked and open, and the mind is clear and free. And so there's a, an open, spacious, quiet intelligence that doesn't function according to the old thought pattern. In fact, Thoughts are few and far between. They're really only engaged when you practically need things, and the rest of the, the way that, that life is engaged is really through an intuitive flow. There's spontaneous right speech and action that arises when the vessel is sufficiently clear, and um, that's what's actually functioning. And it you know works through through the mental capacity that it, the, the cognitive capacity that it works through is clear mind. It's, it's how I would describe it. So it's not as if the mind disappears. What we want to disappear is the conditioned mind. That we want to, you know, we don't want to be run. We don't want to be yeah, hamsters on the wheel. It's not run by habit and conditioning. It's, exactly. it's, it's aligned with cosmic intelligence, if we want to call it exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that cosmic an intelligence that. doesn't have a self-center. And, you know, one discovers that as you engage with it. It's like, where is the self-center? There isn't one. There isn't a center. 
it's a field that you engage. And then as you're engaging more and more from this place of right speech and action, which becomes spontaneous, you look and you see there's basically not a self anymore. There is this, it shrinks, it becomes more and more transparent and there's a beautiful body mind and, you know, everything is seen as one's brother and sister. And that includes, you know, all of nature and the whole universe. And there's a beautiful giving energy that then can flow because the, the vehicle has now been purified and, and opened up. It's no longer kind of held in these sticky patterns from before. So, you know, everything we ever wanted is coming from that mode then, the happiness, the contentment, the um, the sense of being whole and being true and being clear. There's only one place that it comes from in that, you know, and that's that. That, that's this pure clarified consciousness. The conditioned mind is, you know, for, for as long as we engaged in that, to whatever degree we are, is a recipe for suffering. Source of all psychological suffering, basically, is our own yeah. conditioning. I just want to comment um, briefly on something you said earlier, and then we should wrap it up. And, and that is that, um, you know, you said, well, learn some kind of meditation, find a teacher or something. Um, I mean, you're not necessarily going to be satisfied if you just go to, down to your local YMCA and take a yoga class and learn some kind of meditation they teach. Be discriminating, shop around. Um, I mean, your life is an example of seek and ye shall find, you know. I mean, you, you really went at it like a professional, for, <laughs> you know, dedicated yourself to it and and actually moved from thing to thing as you found that one thing was unsatisfactory in some way and you or maybe you'd extracted all the benefit you could you could from it and decided to uh, you know better move on um so be you know people need to be discerning and and if something is not doesn't seem to be don't be a dilettante you know superficial dabbler but if um if something is not working out don't don't give up you know keep on trucking you know find find something which does work um you know call leslie or or do whatever um until you find something which is really producing results and then exactly yeah stick with it exactly and that's a very good point you've made there rick because when you do engage with something that's authentic and deep you will see the results and you know even though i've even though i've emphasized that this is a process and it takes time the results can be seen really quickly when you engage oh yeah i mean week to week when one works with people you can see the growth they see it themselves and that's what that's what keeps one engaged in the process really you can see how you're actually shifting your point of view and your clarity is increasing and your you know your self doubt is diminishing and all these things that used to niggle and worry there's many many dimensions that that shift and basically what's doing it is it's not the ego that's now fixing itself. Basically what one is doing when you're engaged in really deep practice and with the deep teaching is you're allowing the intelligence of one's true nature to actually just flower. So that's what's blossoming. You see, the teacher's not even doing it. All the teacher's doing is giving you pointers. The teacher's learned the territory really well and has experienced it and is, you know, is a guide that can really point out the pitfalls and where to look. And, and, and the teacher can also see where you're stuck, which is very, very helpful. So you give people very direct feedback and that produces real growth that you can see real transformation that's there. So it's not a question of saying, well, okay, I've meditate for 10 years before I see a result. It completely is not like that. And, yeah. You know, it should be um, from the outset. 
uh, one should, or, or very close to the outset, one should begin to notice. But and, and I asked you earlier about how can a person stick with it? They'll stick with it if they're if they're seeing results. And and there's no one who is incapable of getting results if you're doing it if you're going about it right. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stories about meditation being used for you know PTSD sufferers and drug addicts and you know people in prisons and, and kids in inner city schools and people in, in dire circumstances and if it works for them it can work for anybody you just need to make sure that you're doing something that works <laughs> right so i was just going to add to what you've said there really good point anybody who's really moved to do this can do it and why is that why is that possible is this only you know available for for people who have the, you know, Ramana Maharshi genes. No, it, you know, why? Because your own true nature, everybody's true nature is this. This that we're speaking about is the source and the essence of everybody's being. That's why anybody can engage it. And yes, you have to engage it with a kind of a seriousness, but if you're interested and you're willing and you stick with it, it does produce fruit. And, you know, one of the things that if I could just speak to maybe some of the people that I know that are watching or others that are out there who've engaged in spiritual practices and found that they weren't making progress, I would say look a little deeper, maybe find something that is a better fit for you or see, you know, examine where you were stuck and that you weren't moving forward, re-engage, but don't give up. I'd say the thing that creates the sort of deepest hang for me is when I see people stopping the work because they feel one of two things, either that they, you know, it's not for them or that they can't do it, which is not true. Or, and here's the other negative, is that they've actually reached a place where they've, they're there or they've done it. And, you know, that's very rare. You know, this really deep place of abiding realization is still quite a rarity in our modern world, even though a lot of people are engaged in spiritual practice. So if you give up too soon or conclude that you're there, what you're doing is you're, you're truncating or you're arresting your own spiritual journey. Even if you've come to a very deep place, and if you have, a teacher will point that out to you and be happy to sort of agree with you on that. In most instances, people are not nearly as deep as they think they are, but they give up prematurely, as I say, either because they think they can't do it or because they've reached a certain point where they think <laughs> they've done it. Exactly. Yeah. And both points are completely wrong, unfortunately. And then, you know, what they end up doing is basically setting up base camp at a certain part of the mountain. They haven't actually reached the summit. And that's really unfortunate. So I see that, you know, I've seen that when I was engaged in practice myself and I see it with people I work with. So those people who stick with it through thick and through thin, in a way, it's kind of like a marriage when you're doing deep spiritual work. You don't just give up when things are not going well. In fact, that's the you know that's the time that you really need to stick with it. You really, when you're going through a rough patch, you know you you stick with it through thick and through thin, and you'll be surprised where you can, you know what you can learn from those difficult periods. And and yes, it's possible. It's possible for anybody. If you really stick with it. Good. Well, I think we've given him enough of a pep talk for now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, I have six pages of notes here, and I didn't really even need to look at them because we've been carrying on so right. easily. So um, I want to thank you for your time. And um, I will be creating a page on, on batgap.com, as I always do, which will link to your website. And through that, people can get in touch with you, right? And um, 
And is there anything else by way of practical contact kind of information you'd like people to know, or should I just go to your website and, and see what's there? Right. Go, go to my website, see what's there, or check out my Facebook page. I yeah, post I've quite already regularly set it up on to Facebook. Link, to link to all those things, yeah. Perfect. So either way, take a look and feel free to contact me if you'd like to speak. You know, I'm happy to do a, a free session with you. I'm happy to just chat and meet you and see where you are and give you some tips if you just like something small or if you'd like to engage more deeply, I'm happy to do that too. Great. So people will get in touch. And uh, thanks again. And just as a general um, comment here, just um, pretty much everyone watching this knows, but this is an ongoing series. Um, If you go to batgap.com and just explore the menus, you'll see what's available. And I don't really need to go through all the details. Just go there. There's a page that's sort of called at a glance which summarizes everything and uh, so i hope you've enjoyed this and um, stay tuned for many many more and thank you very much leslie it was wonderful spending this time with you thank you very much rick wonderful spending the time with you and everybody else who will be watching this take care and wish you all very well on your on your spiritual journey